Welcome to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DVS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our year-ending 91st episode. I first met Nouriel Roubini during the summer of 1998 in Washington, D.C., where he was serving at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. I remember vividly asking Nouriel one day if he had any favorite stock picks, to which he replied, I don't know about individual stocks, but I know that the overall market will be up in the long term. I want to ask him the question at the end of this podcast, if he thinks the market will be up in the long run again, but that's later. But think about that. If you had invested $10,000 after that conversation with Nouriel back in the summer of 98, you would have registered a cumulative return of over 400% by today, which is an annualized return of well over 10%, which I suppose would put that passive strategy to the top decile of any investment league table. Great advice way back then, even coming from Dr. Doom. Nouriel Rubini is CEO of Rubini Macro Associates LLC, a global macro consulting firm in New York City. He is also chief economist for Atlas Capital LP and co-founder of Rosa and Rubini Associates. He served as a professor of economics at NYU Stern School of Business from 1995 to 2021. And as already mentioned, in the 90s, late 90s, he worked at the Council of Economic Advisors and later at the U.S. Treasury Department. And some of you may know that he has recently released a book, Mega Threats, 10 Dangerous Trends That Imperil Our Future and How to Survive Them. Nouriel Rubini, welcome to Kobe Time. Uh, great being with you today, Timur. A pleasure. Um, pleasure is all mine. Uh, Nouriel, I look forward to talking about some of the mega threats discussed at length in your book and in a series of articles that you have published in Project Syndicate through the course of this year. Uh, but first, on the near-term outlook. This year has been characterized by a spike in inflation, soaring interest rates, war in Europe, and China's pandemic struggles. And still, we are ending the year with global growth, oh, about 3%, and our friends in IMF are forecasting only a 50 basis point slowdown next year. Uh, your take on that near term, Nouriel? Well, in the near term, the biggest question is, of course, is about uh, <clears throat> growth and inflation in advanced economies and also some uh, key emerging markets. Uh, my baseline for next year would be that uh, <clears throat> there will be a hard landing for the global economy. Uh, the IMF is not predicting a global recession, but no. at 2.5%, that's uh, the lowest growth we've had globally in a long time. So they certainly predict a economic slowdown that is very, very sharp. Um, if you look at the data, I would say that the United Kingdom is already in a recession and actually stagflation as inflation is double digits. Uh, the Eurozone is headed towards a, a recession with the latest economic indicators suggesting a significant slowdown of economic activity. Uh, the US is not yet into a recession right now, but I do believe that uh, with a lag, we're going to see also a recession in the United States. Uh, in U.S. Uh, history in the last 60 years, we have never had a situation where the inflation rate is above uh, 5%, and right now headline is 7.7, uh, .7, and where the unemployment rate is below 5%, and it's currently 3.7, that when the Fed then starts hiking rates to bring back inflation to target, uh, you never get a soft landing. You always get a, a hard landing. So the issue is only whether it's going to be a real hard landing as opposed to a short and shallow recession. China is in a sharp slowdown. And um, 
well, technically it's not in a recession for China to grow this year, barely two to 3% uh, is the equivalent of a, a recession. Uh, I think that the easing of the COVID restrictions is going to have only a limited impact on economic activity. The overall, uh, how to say, stance of this new uh, regime is one of uh, caring less about growth and about uh, political and geopolitical factors. Uh, we are still bashing the private sector. There is still overhang of debt. There is still too much uh, state capitalism. So I fear that uh, China is going to be stuck into a 2-3% the growth uh, range for the next uh, few years. That is a significant drag, uh, not just for China, but also for Asia and for global growth. So my baseline is one in which uh, advanced economies enter an economic uh, contraction. Uh, inflation peaks and starts to fall, but it's not going to fall uh, fast enough uh, towards the target, in part because there are still the lingering effects of uh, the negative supply shocks uh, at the aggregate level, uh, the lingering effects of COVID, <clears throat> the lingering effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on commodity prices, and um, the zero COVID policy of China, in my view, is going to be phased out only gradually, and the impact on growth is going to be only modest given the rest of the stance of uh, uh, Chinese uh, overall economic policies. So it's a bit of a hard landing for the global economy, somehow more pessimistic than the IMF baseline. Right. And that's very clear. And I really appreciate your China points. I think the energy markets are sort of reflecting that uh, lukewarm response that, you know, we're getting some news about reopening, but we're not seeing any rally in the energy markets around China's demand picking up anytime soon. Uh, on the asset markets, uh, Nouriel, I mean, 2022 is going to be one of those very rare years where both the fixed income and the equity market sold off substantially. Um, your view on asset markets around that hard landing scenario for 2023? Yes, as you point out, uh, uh, this past year, uh, equity prices fell, but uh, long-duration uh, treasury fell even more as the yield went from below 1% towards 4 ish um, So you had a positive correlation between equity and bond prices. Historically, it's the opposite. Uh, you know, it's a negative correlation, risk-on, risk-off, growth and recession. But that assumes that inflation is low and stable. When inflation is rising, even gradually, the discount factor for equities and dividends, uh, that is the long bond rate, uh, is rising, and that uh, leads to a correction in equity prices, more so for long-duration assets like growth uh, and tech stocks. But then uh, a yield uh, going up implies that the price of the bond is falling, and the yield went up so much that the price of bonds fell more than the price of, of equities. <clears throat> In terms of the year ahead, I'm still bearish uh, about uh, global equities because I expect a hard landing for the global economy. The markets have recently rallied, uh, but in my view, this is going to be a bear market rally like the one we saw in July and August. And the rally is based, predicated on some combination of inflation dropping sharp enough, uh, the uh, softish landing of the world, and then central banks being able to cut rates uh, from the middle of next year on and so on. I think the, the, that conventional wisdom is going to prove incorrect. Inflation is going to be more sticky. Uh, growth is going to be weaker than expected. And how you get uh, growth weaker than expected with inflation higher 
if there is persistence of negative aggregate supply shocks. So only in a real soft landing scenario from current levels, stock prices should be going higher. Even if you had a short and shallow recession, the market has to correct downward another 10%. Uh, if it's a more severe recession, it can correct another 20% or more. So unless you have a strong view that there's going to be a real soft landing, I think uh, there are downsides to U.S. <clears throat> and global equities. For fixed income, I think that the markets uh, uh, expect that the inflation is going to peak, central banks are going to ease, and therefore uh, the inversion of the yield curve is suggesting that uh, you know first uh, rates will be higher, but then they're going to drop. And, uh, and in that scenario, probably long rates would fall as well next year as you fight inflation successfully and then expect that inflation remains anchored. Uh, I'm, I'm more bearish. I'm of the view that the, the great moderation is over and the great uh, stagflationary and debt instability is upon us. I think that uh, inflation is going to remain high, even if some of, even if some of the short-term supply constraints are phased out. Because as I describe in my book, there are at least 11 forces that are more medium long-term that are stagflationary. They reduce uh, potential growth, they increase cost of production, and therefore they cause stagflation. And the other view in the book is that uh, while central banks are talking hawkish now, saying we're going to fight inflation at any cost, in my view, uh, they will have to wimp out and blink. Uh, not only because there is fiscal dominance, meaning in the game of chicken between uh, fiscal and monetary authorities, the monetary will have to blink uh, uh, when the fiscal policy is too loose. But there is a broader idea of a debt trap. That's a concept developed by the BIS economists. There is so much private and public debt in the system. Uh, private and public debt as a share of GDP has gone from about 100% of GDP in the 70s uh, to 350 and rising last year globally, 420 rising in advanced economies, that if central banks fight inflation, not only they cause a, an economic crash, a severe recession, uh, given the amounts of debt, but there is also a debt crash, uh, crash in uh, credit markets, in bond markets, and faced with an economic and a financial crash, central banks will have to win power because there is this debt trap. So, and also see forces that are long-term inflationary. Not only we have large uh, fiscal deficits and uh, debts today, but I see that uh, the pressure are going to be to spend much more with limited ability to raise taxes. And if you have larger structural budget deficits, either you finance them with bonds and that's uh, going to crowd out growth with higher real rates, or eventually you have to monetize them. You know, if you think about it, we're in a geopolitical depression today. So we'll have to spend more on security in Europe against the Russian bear, whether you like it or not, in Asia, the US, its allies are gonna spend more, China's gonna spend more. There is this cold war, they may get colder and eventually even end up into a hot war. So security spending is gonna be higher. Uh, we'll have then uh, spend so much more to deal with climate change. We'll have to spend so much more to deal with the next pandemic, either to prevent it, or if we don't do it uh, ex ante, we'll spend a fortune like we did this time around to deal with the effects of it. We have also uh, AI 
robotic automation, machine learning that's going to lead gradually over time to structural, uh, technological unemployment. We'll have to support those left behind, eventually even universal basic income. That's going to be expensive. And finally, there is uh, so much income and wealth inequality, so much social strife, so much of a backlash against liberal democracy with populist parties, extreme right and left coming to power, that either they come to power and they become fiscally loose, or to prevent them from coming to power, established uh, uh, parties will have to spend more uh, to deal with these consequences, transfer more money to workers, unemployed, partially employed, left behind, uh, minorities, you name it. So we have a war uh, against uh, security issues. We have a war against climate change. We have a war against pandemic. We have a war against the consequences of AI. We have a war against uh, income and wealth inequality. All that implies much more spending, limited ability to raise taxes, structurally higher deficits, and eventually the need to monetize them. You know, my friend uh, Neil Ferguson <clears throat> recently wrote a piece saying, when there are wars, really hot wars, there are deficits and eventually you get inflation because you monetize them. But it's not only cold and hot wars. There are these other wars we're going to be fighting and they'll be all expensive. and They're going to all lead to deficits and eventually monetization and inflation. Right. So, Nuriel, I was going to say, let's talk about your book, but I think you have preempted it uh, very nicely. Uh, I just want to share with uh, the listeners one quote from uh, John Thornhill of, of uh, FT. Uh, he wrote, and I quote, readers of a nervous disposition may want to file this book in the bin before they turn a page. Those braced for an ice bath of pessimism may profit from its gloomy insights about the state of the world. Rubini's warnings may be alarmingly scary, but they're also disturbingly plausible. And uh, Nuriel, I think you know you just did a very, very nice summary of the key issues that you mentioned in your book. I want to talk about them in greater detail, but I just want to stay with the short term just a little longer, if I may. Two follow-ups to your uh, prognosis in the short term. One is on the stagflation. I think in your book, you use this phrase, sticky stagflation. But Nuriel, in the last few months, Around the global economic slowdown, we have seen a substantial decline in energy and food prices. Uh, we will probably see uh, rent prices beginning to come down as high interest rates start denting the real estate market. So wouldn't you say, at least in the near term, this expected trajectory of inflation falling is also plausible? <clears throat> yeah, no, inflation may have peaked uh, <clears throat> in advanced economies and also in emerging markets where Inflation was high in double digits. The issue is not whether it has peaked, but whether it's going to fall sharp enough uh, and fast enough towards the 2% target, say, in advanced economies. My view is going to be uh, more sticky, in part because the wage inflation is going to be more sticky, in part because some of the short-term <coughs> aggregate negative supply shocks are going to remain with us. I consider the fall in commodity prices as driven not by a significant increase in their supply, but rather by expectation of lower demand, given that the baseline is one of a something of a hard landing in the global economy. So those are a reflection of the weaker demand, not of a easier supply condition. And uh, as I point out in the book, uh, <clears throat> there are at least 11 forces that are medium long term, mm -hmm. but they're all materializing even today that are stagflationary, reduced growth, increased cost of production. We have uh, the beginning of uh, deglobalization and protectionism. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, secure trade rather than free trade. Uh, we have uh, 
reshoring of manufacturing from low-cost China to higher-cost Europe or U.S. or even French shoring. And even French shoring is not going to be totally cheap, no. but cheaper certainly than reshoring. We have uh, aging of populations, both in advanced economies and some key emerging markets like uh, China, like uh, South Korea, like Russia. Um, young people produce and uh, they tend to save. Uh, elder people don't produce and tend to spend and they save. That's inflationary. In the past, the migration from south to north, from poor to rich, kept a lead on wage growth in advanced economies. But now, restrictions to migration are becoming quite draconian in Europe, UK, uh, Eurozone, and Europe. But even in the United States, you know, the migration policies of Biden are not really different from those of, uh, say, uh, Donald Trump. We have this decoupling between US and China that is becoming increasing by the day. Trading goods and services, movement of capital, FDI, labor, technology, data, information, that, that's stagflationary. We have the impacts of global climate change. Even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, food prices were rising sharply because uh, there is desertification, lack of water. Last summer, with droughts from Pakistan to India to Western Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, most of the U.S. in the West, uh, Central America, uh, that's that's uh, stagflationary. And on energy, uh, we're bashing rightly so uh, big oil producer of fossil fuels. They're underinvesting into new capacity, as they should, uh, but we're not ramping up the production of renewable fast enough. So there is a structural supply lack, given even normal demand. That's inflationary. That's why uh, Brent was already at 100 even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the fall right now in energy prices driven by expectation of a recession. We have this broader geopolitical depression. It is uh, not just Russia, Ukraine. It's the U.S. and Israel against Iran. It's U.S. Uh, uh, and China over Taiwan. Is the noises that North Korea does, and so on and so on. That's going to lead to decoupling, fragmentation, balkanization, divisions uh, of the global uh, economy and the global supply chains. We have cyber warfare, this inflationary. We have this backlash against uh, liberal democracy because of inequality. This is leading to fiscal policy, pro-labor, pro-union, pro-unemployed, pro-those left behind. And finally, the U.S. and even its allies are weaponizing the U.S. dollar as a tool of foreign policy that may eventually lead to a weakening of the dollar. It's going to be inflationary for the U.S. Uh, as, uh, say, the strategic rivals of U.S. diversify away from dollar assets. Plus, you need that for the global trading system to work properly and efficiently, you need something that's like an oil in the system. And the oil in the system that greases the system is the U.S. dollar. If you throw sand in the wheels of the global trading system by having all this uh, weaponization of U.S. dollar, eventually that creates a greater cost of transactions globally, whether trading goods and services, capital, labor, technology, data, information, and that it's also stagflationary. So you have all these forces, some of them are slow motion, but they are all actually happening right now, and they're all reducing potential growth and increasing cost of production. And I think those are forces that are going to make the inflation rate more sticky than the consensus uh, predicts right now. So, uh, Nuriel, when we look at, say, the five cross five metric for inflation expectations or the uh, steepness of the inverted yield curve that we have. So for you, a rally in long duration assets next year would be 
not necessarily a signal for holding on to them for a long time. You would actually take profit and be ready for long duration to sell off again uh, past 2023. Yes, you know, of course, the measures of expected inflation are not the anchor because so far, Fed, ECB, and other central banks are credible in saying we're going to fight inflation at any cost. I don't think that's credible given my analysis of the supply factors of the debt trap in the longer term, uh, how to say debt and deficits trends. And I'm not, by the way, expecting in advanced economies hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. I'm not even expecting double digit inflation like the uh, 1970s. Uh, I'm assuming that over time, because of all these pressures, <clears throat> the average inflation rate, say, in advanced economies from a target of two could be an actual five, six. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if average inflation were to be 6%, then long rates have to capture expected inflation of 6 plus some real rate. Mm-hmm. And that real rate is going to be higher because once inflation is high and volatile, the inflation risk premium have to be higher. So you get uh, 6 for expected inflation plus another 2% real. You get uh, 10-year treasury 8%. And then mortgage risk is going to be spreads over that, there'll be double digits. And then high grade and high yield, there'll gonna be spreads of that, there'll be uh, uh, double digits in nominal terms, and they're going to be significantly higher in real terms, considering also the amount of debt in the system, private and public. So, so you know, 10 Treasury went uh, from less than 1 to 3.7, 3.8, depending on the day. But uh, if they have to go, say, eventually to 8%, from 3.8 to 8%, you have another... 40% plus losses, yeah. uh, depending on the duration of that um, those, those bonds. That's a huge further loss for fixed income. So it's only if they are able to fight inflation successfully and push it down to 2% and inflation expectations remain anchored, that then you get a persistent rally in uh, long-duration uh, treasury assets. Uh, but that's not my baseline. Sure. Uh, so two follow-up on the debt issue. So one is to your point that we might uh, see higher bond yields uh, around this higher inflation narrative, and which probably would sort of force the Fed to not cut a lot. But if there's a deep recession around the high cost of interest rates and so on, the financial repression dynamic that we saw in many countries in the past, that forcing sort of a negative real rate uh, to be in the system. And from a debt equation perspective, debt sustainability equation perspective, negative real rates, of course, you know, create room for sustainability of debt. So that's one question that, you know, what's your view on that fact that negative real interest rate itself could be a support for the mountain of debt that we have. And the second real, at least in the case of the U.S., private sector balance sheets are, of course, much stronger today than they were during the 08 recession, which, of course, you know, you are famous for calling. Um, But today, it's really the public sector. And haven't we seen that example in the case of Japan, that the public sector can borrow a lot, but if it is in its own currency, it has a privilege where the central bank can support the issuance and it can just, you know, go on for a very, very long time? Well, on on the first question, my view is exactly that because there is a debt trap, uh, you have to, and you are unable to raise taxes or cut government spending or do adjustment enough in the private sector to reduce those debt and deficits, that then you need a bout of unexpected inflation. And a bout of unexpected inflation will reduce the real value of long duration uh, fixed interest rates, uh, dollar assets, but also other ones. Uh, but uh, but that uh, essentially reduces only by little that debt burden. 
for only a couple of years. Because unless you have really high inflation or hyperinflation, you cannot wipe out debts. So you, you kick the can down the road, you reduce some real debts this way. But as soon as then that happens, expect that inflation becomes higher. So nominal yields go higher and real rates go higher because you have the inflation risk premium. So then you still get a debt crisis because especially in the private sector, those nominal and real spreads relative to treasury become much higher. Uh, you know, you can fool all of the people some of the time, uh, some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all the time. And given that that burden, uh, 6% inflation doesn't do it for you. You get only about of unexpected inflation for a couple of years, then you end up into actually a worse scenario because nominal and real rates become much higher and you don't avoid the debt crisis in the private sector. Uh, in the public sector, you have to distinguish between countries. You know, U.S. is still, you know, the major reserve currency, extraordinarily privileged. It's going to be maybe the last one to fall. But we saw what happens. You have reckless fiscal policy in a country like the U.K. and many others in Europe uh, are, are also fragile from a debt sustainability <clears throat> point of view. But the point is, yes, we may need long-term and higher inflation to deal with a debt problem. We cannot... Uh, we cannot resolve uh, uh, otherwise. So that's uh, that will be my view on why actually you're, you're not resolving the debt problem through through higher inflation. Actually, you make it worse. You're just postponing it, and you make it worse. Uh, what was the second part of your question? I forgot. That if the debt isn't largely yeah. issued by the public sector as opposed to the private sector, which is the ah. case in the debt buildup in the yeah. U.S., is that then less of a risky dynamic? Well, you know, first of all, my view is that uh, in the private sector. Uh, the balance sheets are not that strong. Hmm. Um, you know, during the GFC, of course, was a problem with uh, household debt, mortgages, and bank debt. Uh, but even before the COVID crisis, the Fed and other central banks were issuing financial stability reports worrying about the buildup of corporate debt. You know, uh, high yield, uh, fallen angels, leveraged loans, CLOs, private debt, you name it. And the uh, shadow banks that financed uh, the buildup of these types of uh, corporate debt. And, uh, and even some uh, uh, public sector were more fragile. Some of them borrow in their own currency. Some of them borrow in foreign currency. But even in the household sector, there are a whole bunch of zombies. You know, you ask half of the bottom of the uh, distribution of income for the household sector are people that are going from paycheck to paycheck. Their assets are falling in value because of the stock market and of housing, while that debt servicing ratios are rising because you have higher interest rates on the short and the long end of the yield curve. So, you know, we had tons of zombies before this uh, COVID crisis, household, corporates, some banks, shadow banks, government, entire countries. And we bailed them out during the GFC. We bailed them out against uh, during uh, COVID because at that time we had... Uh, low inflation, if not deflation, negative aggregate demand shocks, a credit crunch. So we could do it. The difference today is that inflation is rising, so we have to raise interest rates into a recession, and therefore the zombies are going to not be able to survive. More of them are maybe corporates. More of them are shadow banks. Some governments are also uh, seriously fragile. Those who could borrow in their own currency could deal with it through a bout of inflation, but that inflation eventually is actually more damaging than not. Um, and uh, 
And there is a vicious cycle and doom loop between private sector and public sector and the country and so on. So I think that um, that's why I predict the model of all that crisis. That ratio went from 100 to 350% of GDP globally, 420 in advanced economies, 330 in China. And there are enough uh, parts of each one of the pieces of the private and public sector that are fragile that eventually you're going to see variety of uh, debt crisis. And, you know, an inflation tax is still a tax, a capital levy on creditors and savers to transfer income and wealth to uh, debtors and borrowers. So it is, it is a form of default, actually a more sneaky and less democratic form of default than doing a form of default or doing a legislation to deal with a debt problem. And really, I want to sort of shift the conversation a little toward your view on sort of potential growth in the G3 uh, universe. Uh, so you, in your book, you point out, you know, demographics being a potential drag on growth, the debt overhang being a potential drag on growth. Um, sometimes, you know, one hears from policymakers that investment and policies on climate change is the future engine of growth, that we will have like a Marshall Plan or the Manhattan Project of all time to, you know, bring us new ideas and investments and flows and so on, and that we are not running out of growth engines for the West. Uh, do you share that uh, view? <clears throat> no, I don't share it. One, uh, on climate change, there is more talk than action. Lots of greenwashing, lots of green wishing, lots of ESG investments that are just talk rather than substance. There's also lots of green inflation because many of the green metals to do electric vehicles, batteries, and you name it, use a lot of energy that is expensive, fossil fuel today, cobalt, lithium, and uh, and you name it. That's the first uh, observation. Two, it's true that we may need to do many more investments to deal with climate change, but it's like saying, uh, uh, it's like a war. You know, suppose there's a war, your capital stock is destroyed, then you can have a spurt of growth because you have to rebuild it, but you're poorer because a lot of your capital stock became either destroyed or obsolete. Same thing happened in the 70s with the two old shocks, right? We had to replace energy-intensive capital with different capital. There was a spurt of capital investment, but we were poorer because we had stranded assets. And now the stranded assets are not going to be only in the energy sector. Uh, there'll be also lots of stranded assets, say, in real estate, as lots of real estate is going to become flooded or too hot to live or damaged, hurricanes, typhoons, wildfire, and you name it. So yes, uh, and then a lot of the uh, capital stock, because uh, is uh, is uh, how to say greenhouse gas emission intensive, will also have to be replaced. So first of all, are we going to do all those investments? Is happening too slowly. Even if we make it, is to substitute a lot of stranded capital, private and public, real estate, energy, industrial, you name it. Uh, and therefore, uh, we still are worse off uh, because uh, we have this, we've destroyed effectively a good chunk of, uh, of the capital stock or made it obsolete. Okay, so related to that issue is the uh, role of technology. So one is that, you know, technology itself can probably address some of the climate change related challenges. And more importantly, Technology can help us become more productive in the future, even as aging erodes productivity or technology can address some of the very naughty problems we have around the world right now. Um, can tech innovation save the day and push up potential growth? Uh, yes, uh, they can. 
definitely technology for the last few decades or 150 years has been the driver of increasing economic pie, economic growth, and you name it. And, uh, and even in my description of a more utopian future, the starting point is massive technological innovations. Uh, but, you know, there are many caveats you have to do about uh, technology. Caveat number one, there is all this innovation. We're not seeing it yet in the aggregate productivity numbers. It's a puzzle. Maybe it takes a delay. Maybe it's not really something else, but we're not yet seeing it. Uh, secondly, innovation in AI, machine learning, robotic automation are going to lead to permanent technological uh, unemployment. It's not just routine jobs. Even cognitive jobs that are white-collar can be sliced into various tasks and be automated. And now look at chat uh, GPT, you know, stuff that is more creative. Somebody wrote actually asking a question, a critique of my book, and uh, ChatGPT GPT gave a very good uh, analysis of why oh, my book. I have to check right. it out <laughs> at the PhD level. So you know that's what the, and creative stuff like painting, music, arts can be done. So even creative jobs are eventually you know there are even extreme views that uh, our species sapiens is going to become obsolete once the machine become super intelligence unless we merge with the machine and we become super intelligent ourselves. Additionally. Technological innovation, especially in AI and robotic automation, is capital-intensive, skill-biased, and uh, labor-saving. So if you own the machines or the capital owns the machine, you do well. If you're in the top 10% distribution of skill, education, human capital, like ourselves and many of our uh, viewers and listeners, probably for a while, technology is going to make you more productive. But if you're a white-collar or a blue-collar, low-value-added, medium-value-added, your job and your income are going to be increasingly a threat. And not just menial jobs, as I said, even cognitive and creative jobs. You know, Now chat GPT can even become a, a computer programmer and code. Uh, so even the software engineers and the computer programmers eventually might become paradoxically obsolete in this extreme case. Um, the other dimensions of uh, technology they have to consider is, uh, one, there is a dark side of technology. Usually technology innovation occur because governments want to build bigger and more deadly weapons to win wars against their rivals. You know, we had massive technological innovation in the first industrial revolution, first uh, stage of globalization. We still had World War I. And then in the 20s and 30s, we built the weapons that allow us to fight a nasty World War II. And the end of World War II was using nuclear weapons that were developed initially to bomb uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, only eventually you got the commercial spillover effects in terms of you know nuclear energy and you name it. And right now there's a new race on who's going to dominate AI, machine learning, robotic, automation, quantum computing between US and China. And it's not just the race on who's going to be dominating the industries of the future, who's going to be also the hegemonic military and security superpower of this century as you know, drones, weapon system are all becoming more automated, more autonomous. You'll have robo-soldiers and you name it, and cyber warfare and all sorts of other stuff of that sort. So maybe these weapons, uh, technology allows us to build weapons, going to allow us to fight even more deadly wars than, than in the past. And final thing, people say, as the economic pie becomes bigger, we can afford UBI, right? Some people are going to be left behind. And then we have a UBI, and everybody can be better off. Universal basic income, yeah. Yeah, universal basic mm -hmm. income or universal 
uh, provision of basic public services and so on. So you tax the winners and you transfer money or services for free to the to those left behind. But most people want the dignity of work. That's why in the U.S. many people say, I don't want a welfare check. I want a real job. So the idea of living a life where you're not a productive member of society and you receive a, a, you know, a check is a pretty actually dystopian future. You know, in the U.S. we already have these debts of despair that Angus Deaton and Anne Case have described. A vast underclass is mostly white of people that are skillless, hopeless, helpless, jobless, incomeless, and so on. What do they do all day long? Uh, they, they play video games and live in virtual reality. Uh, many of them are addicted to opioids, about 2 million people. 5% of them die of those overdoses every year, 100,000. is a massacre. And uh, they cannot even reproduce themselves. They are incels, in celibate, involuntary celibates, because given their state, socially and otherwise, they don't even have mates. So a world of UBI is a world that effectively, which a large part of society is unproductive and eventually becomes obsolete, doesn't even reproduce itself. So it's, it's actually a pretty dystopian future. It's not exactly a utopian, and frankly speaking. <laughs> it's not. Gosh, you've depressed me now, Nouriel. Um, okay, uh, I, I, I fear that... that it might not happen to you and I, but most <laughs> yeah. people might have that way, I know, exactly. You know, I've been playing Dark. with both Dali as well as ChatGPT. It is pretty extraordinary, the scope of these things. Um, yeah. Nouriel, just a little uh, change track. Um, you have spent many years, you know, advising and working for various organizations, including the IMF. Uh, I myself work there. So, you know, Challenges like balance of payments crisis, climate change, trade friction, global security, food security. We have the World Food Program and the United Nations and the WTO and IMF World Bank. So you take no comfort from the fact that we have numerous multilateral institutions with... ...are that uh, uh, those institutions have limited power. And in a world of geopolitical conflict, is very hard to achieve, uh, uh, how to say, the provision of those global public goods. I mean, I'll just give you... Uh, one example about climate change. We know what needs to be done. Why is it not done? There are constraints, both domestic and international. Domestically, take the U.S. Half of the country doesn't believe in human-induced uh, climate change. When the Republicans are in power, nothing is done. Secondly, there is an intergenerational conflict between young and old. Old are not going to be around. The young are going to be around for another 80 years. Uh, the young don't vote. The old vote. And anyhow, nobody wants to do the sacrifices in the short run to achieve the benefits of the long run because we discount the future. Even the younger, are they willing to give up lots of stuff and to reduce their carbon footprint? Uh, not, not totally obvious. Internationally, you have a free rider problem. If a country does everything to cut its emission to zero, highly costly, nobody else does it, then it doesn't get any benefit. And coordinating 200 countries to do it is mission impossible. Then we have a conflict between advanced economies and emerging markets. Advanced economies tell China, India, and others, cut your emission in the next 20 years. And uh, China and India say, you created this problem for the last 200 years. Uh, the stock of emissions, 90% of it historically, the cumulative comes from advanced economies. It's true that the new flow is coming increasingly from emerging markets. But EM says, you want me to stay poor or middle income? When you're high income and not, me not growing, no way. I'm going to raise my emission for another 20 years before I start cutting them, unless you bribe me. But unquote, the bribes necessary are in the order of a trillion dollars per year. What was chosen and decided that Shalma Sheikh or Glasgow is spare change, 50 billion. And OEM is going to do the right thing for that spare change. And finally, 
in a world of geopolitical conflicts, as I said, U.S. and China don't agree on even how to deal with uh, pandemics or global security or trade or financial issues and, and so on. They have a very hard time to agree even on, on climate change with these fights between poor countries and advanced economies. Usually to provide global public goods, you need a global hegemon, right? This is a view of the hegemonic stability. 19th century was the Pax Britannica with the uh, UK empire, British empire in the 20th century was the Pax Americana. When you have a global hegemon, that hegemon can internalize those things, externalities, and provide uh, those global public goods. But in the world of great powers, China, uh, US, Europe, India, you name it, uh, we cannot agree and nobody wants to provide those global public goods. So end up with a bad equilibrium. So we need those institutions of global governance. We even need a global government. But uh, frankly, they do the right thing. I have great respect for IMF and all those institutions. But, you know, they're constrained. They're constrained because their political masters are fighting with each other, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, sobering and very, very apt. Noriel, uh, 24 years ago, you gave me a fantastic piece of investment advice. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, investing in S&P 500, a passive investment strategy paid off handsomely. Uh, if a summer intern came to you today and asked you where to put $10,000, what would you tell them for the next decade? Well, for the next decade, it's more complicated because in the long run, usually stocks uh, do better than other asset classes or variety of other risky assets. Uh, if you can hold on for the long term. Um, but there are periods of time like in the, the 70s when you had massive stagflation where uh, equities fell by 50% and stayed low for a decade. In 1982, the price-turning ratio of S&P 500 was only eight. Mm -hmm. Today, it's twice as much or even more so, more. depending on how you measure it. If I'm right, the next decade is going to be a decade of uh, lower growth, of uh, inflation, of stagflation then you could have a bear market in global equity. doesn't last just a year when there is a recession, but could be more protracted, especially in a world of more geopolitical risk and political risk and various sorts of that sort. So I would say and, and equity returns have been so high, MP ratio so high, then maybe you get them below uh, historical values for a long period of time. So only if you believe in a recession, it's only cyclical, that you get then a rebound and long term you want to be in equities. If uh, if the type of tail risk I'm worrying about the mega threats materialize, then uh, then you could have a, at least a decade of subpar returns, if not uh, close to zero negative. Now that's a really really you know sobering note to end this discussion. But uh, Nuriel, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talk about it. And I think that you know listeners should read your book. Uh, to go deeper into it because it is not just uh, pithy observations about the past and the future, but you, in your book, you go very much uh, deep into the, each of the mega threats that you're uh, talking about. So, uh, Nouriel Rubini, thank you very much for your time and insights. And thanks for being with me today. A great pleasure. Thank you, Nouriel. Uh, thanks to our listeners too. Kobe Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Spy Studios. Stacey Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. Kobe Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 91 episodes of the podcast are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.